Okay, let's pray together and, and ask the Lord's blessing. And now, our Father, as we come to deal with the church and uh, what the church is meant to be, especially on the Lord's Day, uh, we pray that this whole concept of the Sabbath and Sabbath rest will uh, perhaps uh, take on flesh for us in a way it has never done before. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Palace, well, house beautiful or palace beautiful is where we are. Right now, just about, nah, not quite middle way, about a third of the way through, although we're going to speed things up a bit after tonight. I had put Ephesians 3 and verses 1 to 21 as your text, and that's a wonderful one to read because we're going to deal with the church. Uh, but as I was resting and also thinking about what to do, I'd rather read Psalm 48 at the beginning and then Psalm 84. These are your two main church psalms, if you will, Psalm 48 and then Psalm 84. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Incidentally, there's a curveball text in here. See if you can figure it out. Um, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. And think of this again, within her citadels. This is a a picture of, of, of the Jerusalem that's from above, localized in churches now. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we've heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. And Selah means stop and think about that. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth, your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Get ready for the curveball text. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Um, one of the things that, that I've been impressed with recently as I've thought more about the church and church planting and, and missions is that everything that God is to us in Christ, the church in Christ is meant to be to the world. Um, God is a refuge and a help. And the church needs to be a place that is a refuge and a help to others. Uh, the church is a place of truth, and so, or the, or God is God of truth, and so the church is to be a place of truth. God is God of love, and so the church is to be a place of love. God is a God of mercy. The church is to be a place of mercy. The church, the God is, is a God who strengthens us. And the church uh, in Christ is to be a means of strengthening, particularly the Lord's people, and of, and of helping them, and so on. 
And Bunyan had a very, very high view of the church in that regard. Now, he had a different view of the church than we did. John, John Bunyan was, uh, who was truly of, of the non-conformist party. Uh, he was not part of the established church. And you can understand why uh, John Bunyan the Baptist reacted as he did uh, to, uh, to infant baptism, or better, household baptism. Don't use the term infant baptism, because then Baptists will say, where do you find infants baptized in the New Testament? We ought to use household baptism, because then we can say to our Baptist friends, when did you last baptize a household? And then they say, well, in the New Covenant, we will baptize a household if everyone is a believer. And you say, well, now that's very interesting. Uh, I know you don't want to be wiser than God. And uh, God, in Acts chapter uh, 17, uh, describes the conversion, or Acts 16, the conversion of the Philippian jailer. And uh, there's no mention that his whole family believed. In fact, the Greek text specifically says um, that his whole household was baptized and they rejoiced in God. He having believed in God, and say, now, really, if there was this Copernican revolution in the way God deals with things in the New Testament, you'd think the Holy Spirit would have said that each one believed, but it didn't. And then here's the zinger to our dear Baptist friends. Say, you know, we're really concerned to have a New Testament church, and that's why we baptize whole households. That'll really get them. See, that kind of thing. (laughs) Excuse me, John Bunyan, but that's all right. He would want to differ. But, of course, John Bunyan reacted to the idea that that, um, uh, everybody was baptized. If you're part of England, you're baptized. You're part of the establishment. You're part of the established church. And I hope that you recoil at that as I do. And, of course, Bunyan went the opposite direction. Uh, You were only to baptize uh, mature adult believers, and only they really composed the church. Um, And on that, we would would differ. I would say this, and this is kind of an in-house discussion, Uh, John Bunyan was not Baptist enough for many of his Baptist peers because John Bunyan, hold your breath, would admit to the Lord's Supper in the church that he pastored when he wasn't in prison. Um, He would admit those who had not been baptized as adults. John Owen was permitted to come to the Lord's Supper at the church that John Bunyan pastored, and John Bunyan's Baptist friends did not like that at all. Uh, but Bunyan went out and said, even though we differ, we are, we, are a, we are a Catholic church, a universal church, and in the same way we don't require that, uh, that, that people hold to our view of baptism to come to the Lord's Supper when they profess faith. So Bunyan had that Catholic spirit. But anyway, that's, that's his view of the church, of church membership. However, Bunyan's view of church life and his view of the Lord's Day something we can learn so, so much from. And so today we're going to deal with Palace Beautiful in this unit, a short unit we have. Christian comes to the Palace Beautiful, or as they describe it here, the House Beautiful. And he is told by the porter at the door, the House Beautiful is the church. This house was built by the Lord of the Hill, and he built it for the relief and the security of pilgrims. And that's a beautiful way to think of the church. So let's, let's take some time. You've got your notes here, whatever page this is in your wonderful little booklets that you have. Ten? Ten? All right, excellent. That's the page. And all i got to do is find out where my notes are, and we're all set. Okay, and I know I have them in here someplace. Okay, so we're looking at um, the Lord's Day, Palace Beautiful. 
And um, church life for Bunyan is, is so beautifully depicted in this section. I really, I frankly, I probably should read it to you. It's so well done. But we're going to we're going to highlight it for the sake of time. Um, and and uh, I, I, the text I always think of in this regard: uh, th- those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and and that comes through uh, very strongly in this picture of of palace beautiful. Okay, so what were the elements? of a church Lord's Day, as, as Bunyan and Pilgrim's Progress looked at the Lord's Day. What were, what were the elements? Well, number one was spiritual conversation, as he put it. Spiritual conversation. And in general, this builds on what I mentioned last time, spiritual conversation uh, is not some kind of conversation where we're all up in the clouds, Okay. Um, it is conversation, a whole life, and our discussion uh, that, that is animated by the Holy Spirit who is in us. And here, see, our charismatic friends wrongly develop what they mean by the charismata in so many ways. But they've got a point that we should not miss. The, holy, the, the church is a charismatic body. John Calvin knew this. He was the theologian of the Holy Spirit and, and, and had a very, very well-developed pneumatology, the doctrine of the Spirit. What, what does that mean in church life? Well, there is a real sense, not in the Roman Catholic organizational sense, that the church is an ongoing incarnation of Christ. Not that. But by the Holy Spirit as an organism, the church does represent Christ in the world. The Apostle Paul speaks of the church as what? The body of Christ. And there's even at least one place where he's speaking about Christ, where he's referring to the church. And, and so Bunyan had that sense, and, and rightly. And, and so the Holy Spirit so works in us that what? The epitome of piety should mark our church life. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 and verses 1 through 4, which um, my dear friend, Dr. Bill Dennison loves to preach on this text as I do, and, and uh, uh, it really it is. It's, it's the dynamic of piety. If then you have been raised with Christ, keep on seeking the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And just parenthetically here, regardless of how you understand how Christ's mediatorial kingship is going to play out in history. Over against the domination of Fox News and CNN and these other media outlets, we have got to be a people who affirm and demonstrate that the king of all the world is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul gives this to a people who are going to face the juggernaut of a persecuting Roman Empire. And he says, you keep seeking the things that are above. Where Christ is seated, he is reigning. We get the language of a session, seated and governing, seated at the right hand of God. Keep setting your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. 
And that should be kind of the general mark uh, of our church life, okay? Now, the way Bunyan distills all of this, uh, he, has, he takes the language in 2 Corinthians 11.2, I betrothed you to be a pure virgin to Christ. Uh, is his picture of the church. And so Bunyan uses the, the language of the virgin. There are these beautiful virgins that he meets in house beautiful or palace beautiful, and they are discretion and prudence and piety and charity. And uh, so those, he, he discourses. I mean, just the fact they were beautiful women anyway was a delight for a Christian on the way, uh, but the, notice their character. They are discretion and they are prudence or wisdom and piety and charity. And, and the talk that they have on this typical Lord's Day is wonderful. I want you to think about your own homes. Perhaps you have a visitor of the church come to your house, or your next door neighbor comes to your home, or you have a or you have a, a fellowship meal at the church. I don't know. You have, whatever it is, where you've got to have be discussing things, and they do this here: a Christian with discretion and prudence and piety and charity. They talk about where Christian came from. He talks about the city of destruction and not longing to go back there, but with grief and with remorse. He speaks of his, of his background, but how God saved him from that. And do you talk about, we talk about our testimonies. Well, do you, do you, are, you, are you free with telling people how God wonderfully saved you? Or if you were brought up in a Christian home uh, saying, you know, I don't know what it was like uh, to be delivered from a life of, of perfidious iniquity or whatever it would be. But I've known the love of God all of my life in my home. Uh, to be able to tell people that. Um, the trials that Christian went through in the way. Um, we speak about these things not as the world does. Why am I going through this? But God has brought these into my life, and these are things that I've learned. That's spiritual discussion on the Lord's Day. His conversion, he describes uh, the wicked gate and the cross and losing his burden, his conversion, and, and never never lose that. Uh, I, I cannot sing long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I remember the, the Lord's day in which I came to faith in Christ, working at a secular radio station when the Federal Communications Commission required three hours of religious broadcasting on every station. Why? How the mighty have fallen. And uh, one of the programs was by uh, uh, Perry F. Rockwood, an easily voiced Perry F. Rockwood speaking the people's gospel hour. And before I was converted, I thought the guy was a fruitcake. I'd listen to it, eat my breakfast. But the Lord brought together a tremendous uh, burden, tremendous convict, tremendous conviction of sin, and also my, my utter inability to believe in the theory of evolution, even as a hardened atheist. I could not buy the theory of evolution and, and the message that Perry F. Rockwood gave that morning, February 3rd, Sunday in February 1970. Uh, he spoke about creation and the fall. And Bill knew the burden on his back was the fall. And then he spoke about redemption in Christ. And all those things I'd heard and a liberal congregational church, vacation Bible school, and uh, things that probably the extent of my biblical knowledge. It came together, and God converted me. Well, to talk about 
um, not drawing attention to yourself, but the grace of God in conversion. See, it's the story. And people like to hear the story of what happened in your life. Pilgrims or Christians' battles, he discusses. His longing for heaven. This is beautiful. Uh, li- listen to the way Christian describes his longing for heaven. Uh, they ask him, what, what are you looking forward to? And Christian says, why, there I hope to see living he who hanged dead on the cross And there I hope to be rid of all those things within me that remain a constant annoyance. At the celestial city, they say, there's no death. And there I shall dwell with the type of companions that I like best. For to tell you the truth, I love my Lord because he released me of my burden. And I'm weary of my inward sickness. In view of these circumstances, I would much prefer to be where I shall die no more and where my companions continually cry, holy, holy, holy. And your unconverted neighbor who I hope is with you for that Sunday meal may think that you're from the planet Venus, but that's okay. For the Christian, supernatural things are the things we converse about naturally. And the Lord gives a day, a Sabbath day, in which that's very much a part of our lives. There's a very touching section that I won't read where Christian is asked about his family. And he expresses the fact that he grieves over the way he was not the example to his family that he should be and why his family reacted to his faith. They said he was too puritanical or whatever, but he expresses his longing that his whole family be with him on the journey to the celestial city. And again, as I mentioned, be encouraged. They would come. That's volume two. That's the story about Christiana, Uh, but it's a touching little section. Anyway, folks, what's your Sunday conversation like? Is it wrong to watch a football game on Sunday? How much does it help you set your affections on things above? Is it wrong to go bowling on the Lord's Day? How much does it help you develop what it is that you've died in Christ? See, I'm not answering their question. I'm asking a biblical one. And when our Sabbath days are full of those helpful things, and it's not just a matter of sitting around the table talking about a Bible, being in an arboretum and seeing flowers and uh, the way God made things, you know, taking the lessons you'll learn from Larry McHarg's Nature Walk and, and, and using whatever it would be to refresh yourself on the Sabbath. What's your Sunday conversation like? I'm going to ask you a very non-Presbyterian question, okay? How do you feel at the end of a Lord's Day? If you feel basically like you did the other six days of the week when you ended them, except that you went to church, you're missing an awful lot. At the end of a day, as exhausted as you are, and then you say, Lord, thank you, you give your beloved sleep. 
Can you say, we had a little foretaste of heaven today? And I would suggest that the more we can say that and really mean it, the more our children will say, I love the Lord's day. Okay? And Bunyan had that sense. Okay, next. Bunyan had, and I don't know if they celebrated the Lord's Supper every week. I'm not that, that familiar with, uh, with, with Bunyan's actual local church practice. I get the impression that they did. Uh, because on this Sabbath day, you read this. There's a table in Palace, beautiful, that was, that was set with many fine things and with wine that was well refined and all of their conversation at the table was about the Lord of the Hill. For instance, they talked about what he had done and the purpose of it and why he had built that house. And from what they said, I understood that he had been, that is the Lord of the Hill, Jesus had been a great warrior and that he had fought with and slain he who had the power of death, though not without great danger to himself. And for this reason, at the table, I was led to love him all the more. And I, for one, I'm getting in trouble for everything else, so I might as well add this to my list so you'll be glad I go back to the wild East Coast. I, for one, am thrilled with the increasing practice of weekly communion in the churches. And if you differ, I respect it. I challenge you to show me any biblical precedent for infrequent communion at the Lord's Supper. And I'll use this as an example, and if it stirs you to think more deeply about it, praise the Lord. Probably 15, 18 years ago, I don't know, in Franklin Square, uh, we moved to weekly communion. We taught the people that. We explained, because some of our folks from Roman Catholic background were beginning to wonder if we were lapsing into that. We went through it. We taught people. you got to teach people. And began having the, the Lord's Supper every week, not not as a morose time of introspection. Make sure you have the preparatory services at least a month in advance before the Lord's Supper to be sure that people are properly sobered before they come. I'm sorry, I don't read it in the scriptures. What I read is that the, the Christians were devoted to the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, which is certainly a meal, but the Lord's Supper and the fellowship and the prayers. And yes, there is self-examination. The scriptures call for that, but it's not morose. Because as you learn here, you've got a great hero who conquered death. And he prepares a table for his people in the presence of their enemies, and God knows they're aware of those enemies every week. And what happened after many years, and you've got to work at this because you don't want formalism. Formalism is ugly. It's horrible. You don't want that. That'll drive young people away quickly. We just go through the motions as good Orthodox Presbyterians. So what? But the sense each week, Christ is coming and assuring us again of his great love for us. And for our folks, many of whom had come from Roman Catholic backgrounds, where do you realize in the Roman Catholic system, if you say you have assurance of your salvation, you, you, that is damnable? And of course, the Reformation, while it was about justification, the flip side was about assurance. And, and the joy people had in the fact that every week, along with the preaching, there was the assurance there, the child of God, and, there, and, and, and Jesus ministers to them at the supper. And, and to the point that if they were away visiting, it bothered them. As frankly, it bothers me. 
uh, when they didn't have that. Well, anyway, for Bunyan, the Lord's Supper and the love of Christ to him. At the Lord's Supper, folks, dwell on the love of Christ. It, once I was in a church communion, I won't mention it. It's not Presbyterian, but it's part of the so-called Reformed community. I think there were 300 people in this church on the Lord's Day, and it was sober. I was afraid if I said an amen, they would say, he's not converted. odious. It is not biblical. And whether they practice the Lord's Supper every week or not, I don't know. But they dwelt on the love of Christ. I love the story of Rabbi Duncan. Uh, they called him Rabbi. He was a Scot, but he looked like a Jew, and he knew Hebrew as well as any Jew, and he was a very serious Scot. And uh, his table addresses are still famous, kind of ponderous for us, but, but they were very rich with the gospel. And there was a young lady in the front row, and she was there, and, and she had been saved out of a rough life. And she struggled with remaining indwelling sin. And serious Rabbi Duncan brought the elements to her in the front row. And she didn't know whether to take the elements or not. And serious Rabbi Duncan, I could probably scare you with a look from his eye. He gives her the elements and he says, take it, lassie. It's for sinners. Right? Okay, it's to feed us and nourish us. Anyway, okay, the Lord's Supper. Number three for Bunyan, rest and peace on that day of the Lord's Day. The church was a place of rest, and we've talked about that, but let me develop. I, I, I've given away my copy. I don't know how many copies of Christianity and Liberalism. Incidentally, if you've not read Dr. Machen's Christianity and Liberalism, it's a must-read. Don't say it was written almost 100 years ago. It doesn't apply today. It applies as much today as it did back then. And his statement about Christianity as a, as a religion of the supernatural, not just the natural is powerful. But he has a great statement in there about why there ought not be political sermons in the churches. There's a lot of reasons. One is, please give us a break. Fox News has their political sermons seven days a week. You don't need them in the church. Now, as you open up the Word of God, you're going to teach lessons that apply in the political realm. But give us a break from the kingdom of this world and all of its strife, and let us breathe the atmosphere of the kingdom of heaven. And that's not speaking of preaching that doesn't intersect where we live. But what it's saying is it's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the king of kings and lord of lords. Reality check. Put that before you, and that is rest and peace. The next that Bunyan speaks of is what he calls Bible conference. <laughs> Bible conference. They're in, the, they're in the rarities room of house beautiful or palace beautiful. It's the study and they are the, the house records of the history of the house. And that's beautiful because it's not just First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings. It would be church history and other things. But it's a reminder on the Lord's Day of your history. 
your reason for existence as a Christian. Isn't it amazing? The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians. One wag commented that probably the most amazing statement in the New Testament is the saints of God in Corinth. New York. New York would have seemed like the outpost of heaven in comparison to Corinth where at any time of day or night in Corinth, there were any number of male or female temple prostitutes where you could go to practice your religion by way of sexual activity. And Corinth was a place of tremendous amounts of commerce and corruption and organized crime and all of that. And God saved people in Corinth. It was as unlike Israel as you could imagine. And Paul writes to the converted Corinthians and says to them in 1 Corinthians 10, all, this is Jewish Paul, all of our, not my, all of our fathers were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And here's P.S. I keep going like this. We'll never get to the material. I'll just be giving you these parenthetical remarks. But for those who say there's no infant baptism in the New Testament, they are wrong. All of our fathers were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And remember, the Holy Spirit has his reasons for giving these delineations of who went. Pharaoh at one point was a true Baptist. He said, you adults, you can go, you can go be part of Israel, you leave the kids here. Moses says, no way, the children are going to go, they're part of the covenant. And so they too were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea. So there is infant baptism in the New Testament. Anyway, he says to the Corinthians, the pagan history of Corinth is not your history anymore. The history that we know of as the history of Israel is your family history. And I want you to know about that. And brothers and sisters, we very much need that in our culture. That we realize that God's kingdom is vastly greater than me and Jesus walking to heaven. That God, our fathers, are spoken of in the Old Testament, in the highs and in the lows, and in their piety and in their impiety, all of those things of the Old Testament. And as you read the New Testament, there's the foundation of what we have as a local expression and a regional expression and a national expression of the Christian church in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And, and it is important that the Orthodox Presbyterian Church function as it should. Why? Well, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church isn't the whole church any more than ball bearings and your car wheels are the whole car. But if those ball bearings don't work well, you're going to have problems. And so in the same way as a, as a church, we function well. And that's we're part of that train of history. And on the Lord's Day in the church, the records of the church, our reason for existence is there. And as I mentioned to the young people yesterday, let, let your young people see the drama of the Christian life. As you read of the martyrdom of an Anastriquiter in Eritrea, now that's something we shouldn't lose. It's part of our, our history, the kidnapping of a Debbie Dortzbach that was recorded in Reader's Digest. 
uh, Dr. Machen's life that was, those stories were written of uh, on, on the front page of the New York Times, folks, because that was a significant event. And the drama that God is carrying out today, it's not just that we're sending out missionaries. God is writing lines of the drama of church history in this day, in part through the ink and, and the, the nib of Orthodox Presbyterians. Teach your young people that. They're part of something much bigger than themselves. Let them get over the fixation with self in our culture, okay? So the, the, the Bible conference, the studies, the rarities, and the house records, and then also the, the site of the delectable mountains is number five, the site of the delectable mountains in which a Christian receives instruction in heavenly things by seasoned shepherds who ministered to him. See, pastors, again, coming up, not just the Bible, but the shepherds, the pastor, and it increases your longing for glory. And I remember when I was at Epcot years ago in, 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 in Disney World, and um, I was always fascinated by the fjords and the Norway pavilion in Epcot, the fjords. I hope that before I get to glory, I get to see the fjords in Norway. But see, seeing something of those fjords and the way that was depicted gave me a taste to want to go there. Um, pastors... Um, Give folks a little taste of heaven every week. Our worship starts from heaven. God speaks and greets us, and his benediction is from heaven. And as he says, go forth in my strength, and I love it, a number of us as ministers are committed to our own line. You know, in certain circles, give him hell, preacher, give him hell, preacher. I don't want to go to that church. For Reformed ministers, it's give him heaven, preacher. Give them heaven, preacher. And that's what they did in the delectable mountains. And then finally, and this is going to prepare us for tonight, the armory. The armory, putting on the whole armor of God. And Christian is taken to the armory. Uh, he's given a tour of the whole thing. And then he is equipped. I love the language. And so this is cool. There's one word in particular that, that it really stands out. But he's, he's, in, he's in the armory. It's toward the end of the day. And uh, we read, let, let us return. After seeing the whole thing, uh, the, the, the guide there says, let us return to the armory. So they did this. And when Christian entered the room, his, he was equipped from head to foot with fully tested weapons. You know who tested those weapons? Christ did. You do a careful study of each one of those things, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit, the belt, uh, the helmet, and a lot of those are references in Isaiah. They refer to the armor that the Messiah would wear in his battle with the enemies of God. And so this is well-worn. It is, it is fully tested weapons, lest... Christian should encounter assaults along the way. And here's where I love the next phrase. Thus, having been well accoutred. That's the great word. You ever heard the word? There's Merriam-Webster's word for the day. Thus, having been well accoutred, outfitted, he was escorted by his friends to the palace gate. Why? Well, because Sunday is going to become Monday and there's going to be battles to fight. 
And you'll find out tonight, as our children will, not only about one of the the battles with Apollyon, uh, but also they're going to learn how to use their swords tonight. Let me end this time. Turn to Psalm 84. Remember the two church psalms. May the Lord so work in each of our churches that we are more and more like this beautiful picture of the life, the pilgrimage of God's people in his church. It's interesting, it says, how lovely, literally, are your dwelling places, O Lord. Well, at this time, whether it be tabernacle or temple, there was only one. But the Holy Spirit is looking forward to those days that there would be churches in places like La Mirada and Costa Mesa and Westminster and so on. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. They will always be singing your praises. Selah, stop and think about that. Blessed are those whose strength is in you in whose heart are the highways to Zion as they go through the valley of Baca, which means weeping. They make it a place of springs. The early rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength, each one appearing before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear O God of Jacob, Selah, stop. It's almost as if he says, God, stop and think about this. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your Messiah, your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows Grace and glory. Remember that grace is glory in the bud, and glory is grace in full bloom. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Do you believe that? O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. That's what it is to be, at least for a time, in Palace Beautiful. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, when we travel, and we appreciate rest stops, comfort stations, where we can stop and be refreshed along the way and perhaps feast and even get a little nap. But then we stop at those places so that we can continue our journeys to our destinations. Thank you for the Lord's Day as our weekly rest stop. Uh, thank you for the church, uh, along with everything else that it is, as the great comfort station that it is to us on our highway to heaven. God, you are so, so good. We thank you that you don't just save individuals and families, but you make us part of a church. 
and which you do by the gospel what the United Nations cannot even think about, cannot even do, begin to do. You make us brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. You make us families who are part of the great heritage of the promise given to Abraham and you. All the families of the earth will be blessed. Isn't it amazing as we're at this camp, we realize that we are part of that promise. And so our Lord, thrill us with these things. Uh, Don't let us get so involved in all of the machinery of church life and all of the the duties, good things, right things that we do, that we miss the fact and that this is the atmosphere of glory. This is the service that is the picture of the service of glory, that the, the communion that we have is really a communion with Christ and his people and the rest that we have that that gives us something of the oxygen of heaven is just a little bit of what we will have in eternity. Oh God, we pray that we would never be so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good, but rather, Father, make us so, so rightly heavenly minded and kingdom minded that we are of the most earthly good. And now, our Lord, strengthen us with the food. Thank you for the staff here and for all of the work that they do that we might eat, that they might, that we might have our dishes clean properly and not feel that burden ourselves. We have a break from that. Bless the staff workers here. Bless, we pray, the administration of this camp. Continue to use it to make it a wonderful arbor for Christians like us and for others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.